0: Thank you, Anna. Good morning. Good. Hey, welcome to uh, Midtown Fellowship 12 South. Uh, My name is Elliot Cherry. I'm the pastor here. And uh, fall has begun. Uh, We are beginning our new fall series uh, this morning because we get to decide when seasons change. Um, Actually, I know the season has changed because college football is among us now. Uh, And great day for the Vols yesterday. Whoops. Whoops. Uh, and actually, I'm very excited about that. Uh, sorry. Um, it, it is, I, I, don't, I, don't, I, I don't think that this is, represents the majority of this room uh, or our, our world in Nashville, but there's something about hearing uh, the sounds of college football and the weather starting to change that I believe that Jesus is making all things new. Uh, I love it. Uh, it is a deep joy for me. So I totally neglected my kids yesterday and watched football all day. Um, that's, that's not entirely true. But um, yes, welcome to our fall series. Uh, we're going to be spending the fall in the book of Colossians. Um, we're going to spend about two and a half months in a book that is literally two and a half pages in your Bible. Uh, it, is, it is a power packed book. Uh, the Apostle Paul wrote this book uh, from prison, he's in prison, he's in chains in Rome awaiting trial, and he writes to this small, small church in a little town of Colossae in Asia Minor. So if you can imagine, uh, kind of across the Mediterranean Sea, he's writing. He's never even been to this church. He, he didn't plant this church. He planted a church in Ephesus that then planted this church and so he he's never even met these people but he loves these people this is this is like the beginning seeds of the gospel of the kingdom of god are beginning to grow in throughout the roman empire and so he pens this letter to a church that he's never met but he loves he and in so writing to all these churches that he planted before he got arrested he he is longing to see the kingdom spread throughout the roman empire and so he's writing to encourage this small little church in, in, in Asia Minor. You need to know that uh, Colossians, uh, the, the town of Colossae is a small town in a pluralist society. Meaning that uh, you kind of had your buffet of options of what deity to worship in that day and age. You could, you could worship your gods and I could worship my gods. And as long as we don't tell each other that you're wrong about your gods, we can all kind of be at peace in this pluralistic society. I imagine we can relate today, uh, in this very pluralist empire known as the Roman Empire, Paul is writing to them into that scenario. And it, it's known as, in, in kind of biblical scholarship, the book of Colossians is Paul's most Christological book, which all that that means is, is that kind of more times than not, more times than any of his other letters, he is holding up Jesus to say, do you know that Jesus is the God of all gods. Do you know that the, all these other gods you've been worshiping, Jesus what has existed before creation. He, had, he created the world. Nothing existed before him, and he deserves and has every right to your adoration and your worship, that he is the rightful king of the universe, and he holds all things together. And that Jesus, that Christ, is also the one that has done something in space and time. And so I'm writing to you not only about the the preeminence and the majesty of this Jesus, I'm trying to write to you about what he's done for you and how what he's done for you could have an, an effect, could have an impact on every area of your life. What he's done and how it should change your life and how those two things are married. So he spends about the first two and a half chapters just talking about Jesus and what he's done. And who Jesus is and, and how, how um, high ranking he is uh, and, and how much he deserves our adoration and our, um, our allegiance. And then he says, "And hey now, since that's true, let me talk about how that like, gets traction in your life. And so what Paul is doing is what we're going to do. He's constantly intertwining who Jesus is and what Christ has done and how it should affect our life. And that's what we're going to spend the fall talking about. But over and over again in this letter, four times in the opening chapter, um, basically in the first chapter, first couple of verses of, of chapter two, he does it as well, but Paul calls this message that he's teaching, the gospel of Jesus, he calls it a mystery. He says, I'm here to explain to you this profound mystery that, that God has now revealed to us in the person of Jesus. And, it, and it's not the mystery like, man, a detective who's on the case who can't solve this. It's more this idea that he's getting at, this mysterious gospel is, is a mystery because there's no way it's this good. Like, it's so profound and so deep and so majestic, this gospel of Jesus and his kingdom. Like, I, I, I'm calling it a mystery because we'll never, we'll never plumb the depths of it entirely. It's, it's so good. It's so rich. It's almost mysterious. Like, we might not ever fully understand it. It's that good. And so borrowing from Paul's language, calling the gospel uh, this, this mystery over and over again, um, we've decided to call our series, throw that artwork up. Is it, has it been up the whole time? I've been unaware. Good. Thank you. Timing. Uh, we're calling this series uh, Ma- Maturing in the Mystery of Grace. We used, we, we didn't borrow, we, we paid for some artwork to be used from an artist from a family here, uh, Sarah Landolt. She's got some amazing, amazing artwork uh, but the, the idea is that the, the the imagery even should go along with this mystery of the gospel. Do you know how beautiful it is? are you Are you drawn into this mystery that we will never reach the final depth of, but we will always be searching to know more and more of the riches that is in Jesus and His gospel. And what would it look like to mature in that? What would it look like to grow up in this mysterious beautiful, awe-inspiring gospel of Jesus. So we're calling it Maturing in the Mystery of Grace, which is going to be our, our two parts of today's sermon. As a way of introduction to the book and the series, and this is kind of a theme for Paul all throughout, wanting the church to mature in this mystery of grace, that's how we're going to break up today as well and what our passages lead us in. First, what is this mystery of grace? And then we'll talk about what does it mean to mature in that mystery as a way of setup to come to communion together in just a little bit. So first, Paul, uh, in verse 22, the first little section that was read, first couple of verses that Anna read for us. Verse 22, Paul is revealing the mystery that he also calls the gospel. Listen to the mystery declared, the mystery revealed. But now he, that's God, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death, to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Let me read that one more time. But now he, that's God, has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Paul is saying that the, this eternal, preeminent, uh, eternally existing Jesus stepped into space and time he got a body that's what he's saying he got he like put on actual skin he incarnated and he stepped into space and time he stepped into history and he did something and what jesus the son of god very god of very god what that jesus that preeminent god that preeminent christ did affected something it actually changed it altered a reality it affected a new a reality for the people of God. It did something. It wasn't just an example to look at and go, man, isn't that precious what Jesus did? We should all be inspired by that. No, it changed something. It did something. It altered a reality for those that belong to Jesus. And here's what he says. The very end of verse 22. Christ now, because of his death and work and resurrection, has presented you to himself, holy, without blemish, and free from accusation. In the original Greek text uh, of the New Testament, um, ancient Greek, there is an alliteration in these verses. Uh, So a little bit of the the artistry is lost on us when we read it in English. But in, in, in English, this is what he's saying. If you are in Christ, three things, not only three things, but these three things are now true about you. If you are in Christ, if you belong to him, these three things are true about you. Like Jonathan said in our call to worship, these are the truest things about you. And better yet, not only are these true about you, the truest about you, this is how God sees you now. That's what he says. In his sight, this is how you appear. That's what he says in verse 22. You are holy in his sight. You're without blemish in his sight, and you're free from accusation in his sight. That last term, free from accusation, it's a, yeah, I know, amen. Um, uh, It is a judicial term, It's used in other ancient Greek literature as a judicial term free from accusation. It was used in court to talk about the person on trial and what the verdict was, what the gavel slamming was about the person on trial. And in, in this form, Paul is saying it's a term that literally means this person who is on trial before a judge is unable to be accused now. That's how innocent they are. They're unable to be accused on anything. They've been declared innocent And they are now unable to be accused. They are literally unaccusable. Can't even have an accusation brought against them. So this is a judicial term. Paul's trying to bring us into a courtroom. He's using a very legal um, term by saying what Jesus has done for the church. If you're in him, these are the things that are now true about you in court. You are holy, you're without blemish, and you are unaccusable. How is that even possible Well, it's what he says in the verse, the the half of the verse right before that. Because Jesus has labored, because Jesus has done something, because Jesus has worked and achieved something for the church, he now has a spotless record of righteousness, and that record of righteousness now belongs to you. If you're in Christ, his record of righteousness has now become your record of righteousness. So you are now unaccusable if you stand with Jesus in the heavenly courts. If you are in Christ, the gavel has slammed from the judge. He has presented you, and here is the verdict. Hear this now. This is the declaration from the judge. You are holy, you're spotless, you're perfect, you're radiant, you are unaccusable. No one can bring a charge against you in the heavenly courts if you are in Christ. You've been presented by Christ with the merit of Christ on your behalf. You will be presented spotless because Jesus is spotless. You will be presented without fault because Jesus is without fault. You are now presented unaccusable because Christ is unaccusable and his record is now yours. You stand with him. That's what Paul says in Romans 8. This is why it was our call to worship that Jonathan called us into worship with. Romans eight, Paul says this, who can bring a charge, meaning an accusation in court, who can bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. And then he says, and who is to condemn God's people? Jesus has already died. And the logic is this, Paul is saying this, if you stand with Christ, that means he was punished for your sin, past, present, and future. And now if Christ has been raised and God has given a verdict over the work of Christ, that verdict now belongs to you. Who can bring a charge against God's elect if you stand with Jesus? God has already justified you. So there might be a heckler from the back of the courtroom after the gavel hits and going, no, 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 no. Do you know all the stuff that they've done? Do you know all the things that they've done? Who can bring a charge against someone that God has justified? He's justified you. There is no more charges to be brought against you. It's what Romans 8 is saying. If you're united to Christ, then he has already paid for all of your sins, been killed for them, and then raised for your justification. And so because of that, God has declared you justified. If God the judge has declared you justified, if God the judge has declared you holy and blameless, and if Jesus has already paid for all of your sins, who can bring a charge against you? The logic would be the same as this, as asking this question. Because I when I ask that question, who can bring a charge against you? You can probably go, lots of people. Lots of people know all that I've done. Lots of people could bring some charges against me and the things that I've done, the things I've said, things I've thought about, the things I've future fantasized about. Lots of people could bring a charge against me. But let me, let, me, let me change one of the nouns there. The question is not so much who could bring a charge against you in your life in your record of righteousness or unrighteousness. The question is this, who can bring a, car, a charge against Jesus? You want to charge Jesus with something? He was perfect. So if you can't charge Jesus, you can't charge you either if you belong to him or in the words of an old hymn by Samuel Gandy listen to these words what though the vile accuser may roar of sins that i have done i know them well and thousands more my god he knoweth none what though the vile accuser may roar of sins that i have done i know them well and thousands more my god he knoweth none You stand with Jesus. Who can bring a charge against Jesus? It's God who justifies. That is the mystery. That is the profound mystery that the gospel of Jesus is declaring. Paul is saying to the church, this is the mystery of the beautiful gospel. And it may sound like I'm the preacher making this up. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. It wasn't too good to be true for Paul. He's saying, you're going to hear this, you're going to think there's no way that's true. Let me tell you again, church, if you stand with Jesus, when you stand before the judge, when God the judge looks at you, he sees Jesus. Therefore, if you're united to Jesus, you stand with his record, with his merit. So Paul can literally say, before the judge of the heavenly courts, you are holy, you're blameless, you're unaccusable. There's nothing that can be brought against you in the heavenly courts. It's the mystery of the gospel. But then Paul says a few verses later, okay, that's what Jesus has done. Jesus has labored. Jesus has done something to present you holy and blameless and without accusation. And then Paul says, Jesus has worked to present you. Now I am working to present you. I'm laboring for something too. He says, with all of his might in verse 29: I am laboring with everything I've got, to present everyone fully mature in Christ. The labor of Paul, the, the, the driving force behind his ministry, is to labor for the church, the people of God, that they would know their maturity, that they would have maturity in Christ. We'll talk about the structure of this sentence in just a minute. But that word, fully mature, it's a Greek word, a power-packed Greek word. It was like a bomb in Greek philosophical circles. It's very Aristotelian. How do you say that? It was used by Greek philosophers. This word is telos. It's a really complex word. It's a really complicated word to try to put in just one English word. So if you read all of the English translations, that word telos Sometimes it gets translated a whole host of different ways because the, the translators are trying to find the one English word that would that would translate this one Greek word, but can't really be done. Some translations translate that English word telos or from the Greek telos into English perfect. That that God, that Paul would be saying here, I'm laboring to make the, the church perfect in Christ, but perfect is not quite the it's a little bit too strong almost. And so a lot of English translations translate that word telos as mature, but mature is almost a little too weak, especially if you're someone who says mature, which is the wrong way to say mature. <laughs> but what does Paul mean here by maturity, that, that word telos, why is he using it? And why would we call our entire sermon series maturing in the mystery? What, what, what are we getting at when we use that word? This, this complex word, it gets translated a whole host of ways in a lot of different contexts. It gets at the idea of, of a knowing, a full knowledge. It gets at the idea of, a, of, a, of like a trajectory, like an aim that I've set my life on, what, what I'm feasting on, what I'm completing myself with. It, it's, it's complicated, but here's one helpful Greek lexicon definition. Telos is the complete... An undivided way in which a person is oriented towards something—it's what someone sets their attention on. It's what someone sets their focus on. It's what someone stands on and builds their life on, and is the foundation of their life. And they're standing on it. And they want to. They want to. They want to know everything there is to know about that idea. And so Paul is laboring to present believers fully, Talos, mature, complete. To have an undivided orientation. To what? He says, present them mature, telos, in Christ. Meaning, Paul wants to present the believers mature in the mystery. And what's the mystery? That Christ has worked to present believers to himself Holy, without blemish, and unaccusable. So here's what Paul's saying. The final judgment, church, if you belong to Jesus, the final judgment, the final verdict is in. It's already been declared because of Jesus. That is secure because the righteousness of Jesus is secure because he's alive and not dead. So it's settled. Your verdict is in in the heavenly courts. And one day, you will stand before the judge. And what will free you on that day, what will pardon you on that day is not your record, it's Jesus' record. And Paul knows that. That's the mystery. He's saying, hey church, I want to mature you in that mystery. Meaning, I want you from here until you stand before the judge to walk into that courtroom full of confidence. I want to mature you in that. I want to orient you to the mystery of Christ. I want to mature you and grow you up and aim your life into this reality. This is so true that when you walk before God the judge, you will walk in beaming. Because I walk in knowing what my Jesus has done for me. And so I'm confident. I'm mature in that. Paul's saying, I'm laboring for that. But that between now and judgment day, you will be at rest. You will be at Peace. It has been said before that the church is not loved to to the degree to which they are like Christ, but they are loved to the degree to which they are in Christ. Meaning, your union with Christ, your belonging to Jesus is what sets the tone for your verdict. Not how much you're like Jesus. How much are you in him? Do you have faith in him? Do you belong to him? You're secure. And Paul is laboring that that mystery of the glorious gospel would be brought to light For the church. And just as a side note and a total shameless plug, Paul here, unashamed, he is not afraid, he he is bold in declaring how much the church in Colossae, the Colossian church, needs him to teach them and to admonish them and to guide them and to mature them. Meaning, Paul knows they're going to need some help in this maturing. Paul also, in all of these pronouns, when he's writing to the church, they're all plural pronouns. Meaning this, Paul knows that to mature in Christ, you can't do it alone. You absolutely cannot do it in isolation. If you think, man, it's just me and Jesus and I'm a Christian on my own, that's kind of all I need. I don't really need anybody else. Then you will not mature in Christ. Paul is, is adamant about it. So here's my shameless plug for midtown small groups. And here, let, me, let, me, let me make this caveat. I don't care if you're in a midtown small group. I care that you're not alone. I care that you're not in isolation. Sign-ups went live on Friday, and I hope to God by the end of today we're all full. We're, We're probably pretty close already, but here's what I know. Here's what Paul is unashamed in announcing. You will not mature in Christ on your own. It's impossible. That's why he's saying to them, you're gonna need me to help you mature. Do you know it's okay to need other people to help you grow in your knowledge of the mystery? If you're in a Midtown group or not, I really don't care. Let me tell you what you're gonna get with a Midtown group if you sign up for one. You can get $1,000. No, I'm kidding. You're (laughs) going (laughs) to... If you sign up for a Midtown group, here's what you're going to get. You're going to get a leader, a group of leaders potentially even, in a living room on some night of the week that they have been trained and equipped to love you, to help you grow in maturity, to help you feast on the gospel through Scripture together. They're going to walk through a passage of Scripture with you in that living room. And they're not going to try to fix you or rescue you or save you. They're going to let you be you. And they're going to apply the gospel, this mysterious gospel, to your life wherever you are. And they've been tra- They've signed up to say, hey, I want to do that for a room full of people. And so if you're getting that somewhere else, great. I, I, don't, I don't care if it's here or not. I care about you maturing in the mystery. I know that in Midtown groups, you will. I know that that's what we are building it all on. So if you're getting it somewhere else, I would celebrate it, I, truly. If you're not getting it somewhere else, please, for the love of Jesus, literally, please sign up for one of our groups. We, we long for it, for you to mature in the mystery of the gospel. But let's back up a second. Let's ask this question. Why would Paul, or why would Midtown, care about you maturing in the mystery? Why would Paul care about it? And what would it mean to be fully mature in the mystery? What would it mean to have telos in the mystery of Christ. Well, it's why language here is so important down to even the prepositions that Paul chose to use through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, what he was trying to say. Paul here says he wants to present the church mature in Christ, not present the church mature to Christ. The idea that mature to Christ is, gets at this idea of like, Paul wants to kind of polish the church up and clean them up and get them ready like this prize and go, here you go, Jesus, I'm presenting your people mature to you. Don't you see how mature I've made them? Don't you see how clean and holy and righteous they are? Look, but that's not what Paul's saying. He says, I want to present you, church, mature in Christ. Meaning this, Paul knows that the church is already a trophy to Jesus, Paul knows the church is already a prize to Jesus, and he has made that known through his work. Paul is laboring for the church to know what kind of prize and treasure they are in Christ. He's saying, I'm not laboring so that you clean your act up. I'm laboring so you know how precious you are to Jesus. I want to mature you in the mystery, not mature you to show you off and maybe Jesus will love you then. No, look at what Jesus has already done. Jesus has already labored to present you holy and blameless and unaccusable. Do you know that? I want you to mature in that. Paul wants the church to live out of, to be driven by, to be so rooted in, to be immersed underneath the mystery of the gospel. And so maturity for Christ, maturing in Christ, Paul would say, would be for the church to live out of Who they most truly are. Maturity would be for the church to have embraced their truest identity. What is that identity? We just went over it in verse 22 You're holy, you're blameless, you're unaccusable. That's your truest self. That's who you really are now before God. And Paul's saying, I want you to know that so deeply that you begin to live like that's true. You know how I'll know when you believe that that's true? You'll start living like it's true. He wants the church to live as if their truest identity was real. That the church who's already holy in status before God would become holy in reality. That the church who's already without blemish in standing before God would become that in reality. That the work, the labor of, the striving of the Christian life is to make the Christian what they already are. It's, it's, to, it's to have their actions catch up with their identity. This is who you are. You're holy and blameless and unaccusable. Do you know that? Do you know how your life would look differently if you actually believed that? Only in Christianity, only in Christianity are you given an identity first that is unchangeable and then taught to live out of it. It's the only religion or philosophy in the world where that's true. Every other religion, every other way of thinking is going to tell you work, labor, achieve, and you'll get an identity. Christianity says, here's an identity. It's free because Christ has labored for you and accomplishes for you. Now, will you learn to live out of that? And so growth in the Christian life, maturity in the Christian life looks like stepping into who I really, truly am in Christ. That my life begins to reflect my truest identity. And mature people, mature in Christ are those that have become, that have become so at ease, so at home with their identity in Christ that there's nothing left to prove. And so they become free people. At Midtown as leadership, kind of in, in the um, discussions in the, in the um, planning that we have, we talk about this a lot, seeing our people become mature in Christ. And we, when we say that, we mean maturity in the fully orb sense. We talk about four-part maturity as leaders here. That we hope to see all of our people become mature relationally, mature spiritually, mature emotionally, and mature socially. We want maturity, the maturity in Christ, to then infiltrate every part of their being. We want them to be mature with their emotions. Do you think anybody needs help with that? We want people to become mature socially, where they begin to see themselves in their truest identity, and what that means for their role in serving the world. We want people to become mature relationally that would heal marriages and heal parenting and child relationships and heal relationships at work and in the city. We want to see maturity happen in all of its aspects. We want to see that because, and this is another tagline we say around here a lot as leaders, we believe that the mature in Christ changed the world. This is why Paul cares about it. This is why Midtown cares about it. We're not just trying to say, hey, how many maturity points can we get and grow up and then celebrate and go, man, we really became mature. We know that the more mature people become in Christ, the more they change the world. It can change your marriage. It can change your neighborhood. It can change Nashville. It can fight against poverty and injustice. It can go seek out the marginalized and the lost. Mature in Christ, the mature in Christ always go and change the world because you know what mature in Christ do? It's all maturity in Christ. Always expresses itself in loving and serving and giving myself away for others. Always. It's what happens here with Paul. We see maturity on display with Paul. Guess who Paul doesn't talk about as his focus one time? Himself. He's only talking about what God has called him to do for the sake of others. He's not even thinking about himself. That's how mature he is. He's he's not thinking about how Paul's doing. He's so free in his maturity in Christ that he's free now. Because this is what free people do. They always seek to give it away. That's what free people in the kingdom of God do. They go find ways to serve other people. Serve their wife, serve their kids, serve their neighbor, serve their coworkers, serve their city. When there's nothing to prove, you will be free. And when you know who you are, when your identity is secure, you will have nothing to prove. And when you have nothing to prove, you will be free. And in God's kingdom, the free become the servant. The mature in Christ changes the world. That's why Paul cares about it. That's why Midtown cares about it. That's what we're laboring for. And so what would it mean if that's kind of what maturity looks like, that I would be this fully oared, mature person as I grow in my understanding of this mystery of the gospel? If if that's what maturity begins to look like, that free people, mature people end up changing the world, what would immaturity be in that reality? What would it look like to to not be mature in Christ? What will will life be like if we are immature? Well, almost all of us in this room, I know, have been wounded deeply by someone else's immaturity. And we all have crystal clarity on other people's immaturity. We've got PhDs in other people's immaturity. But just go with me for a second. Is it possible that we're immature? (laughs) Is it possible that we've got immaturity? I'm not not taking theirs away. But is it possible that one of the signs that we're immature is that we don't know we're immature? Is that a possible sign like a child doesn't know when they're acting like a child? We don't know our immaturity. Therefore, we don't realize how much we're wounding others with our immaturity. One of the ways that immaturity always manifests itself, always, And I believe we can all relate to this, or at least we're all aware of this, is that in the corners of our hearts and in the corners of our minds, we're always in a courtroom. We're always in a perceived courtroom where we feel the need to prove something, feel the need to defend something, something, feel the need to justify something, feel the need to make excuses for something. We're always trying to prove ourselves in a courtroom. And sometimes the jury of this imaginary courtroom, sometimes the jury is other people. Sometimes it's coworkers. Sometimes it's your parents. Sometimes it's your boss. Sometimes it's, it's people out there that you are in a courtroom, or you believe they're the jury on your case, and you feel the need to prove yourself to them but many, 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 many times. In a culture that has bled for the modern credo of, to thine own self be true. And don't let anyone tell you who you are other than you. You get to decide who you are. And in a modern culture that has pop rock anthems that sing the worship of that, that you need to be proud of you and that's all that matters, we're told over and over again this credo, To thine own self be true, which means, is what I know because I'm living it, that means that in the courtroom of your mind you're never at rest. You, you, you don't have what it takes to declare yourself something innocent or guilty. So our own minds never rest. So when you're driving home from work and a memory pops in your mind from earlier that day or earlier that week or nine years ago, and now you're having this discussion with yourself on why you did it and, and what drove you to make that decision and why you were misunderstood and why you're, you're able to justify the thing that you said or you did and now you're in a courtroom. Or sometimes you're leaving a meeting and someone in that meeting, coworker or superior, uh, said something critical of you. And now all you can think about when you're leaving that meeting is, what do, what do they think about me and why did they say that? And do they know how hurtful that was? Now you're in a courtroom trying to prove what they said isn't true because of this, this, and this. And so the evidence is coming out. Or sometimes when you're falling asleep at night or you wake up at 2 a.m., you begin thinking about how hard and desperate and hopeless your life is and to even get up the next morning and do life again the way that it's currently going sounds like suicide. And so you go, why am I even living anymore? And so you, you're in the courtroom. I'm trying to prove why my life matters. I'm trying to come up with the evidence of why I should even keep doing this and why I should have light in this darkness. And all I can think about is all the things that are proving to me how hard and despairing my life is. We live in a courtroom, and the courtroom, the courtroom of the mind is a brutal place to live. Because your enemy, Satan, is what the Bible calls him. Do you know what the word Satan means? Satan in Hebrew means the accuser. Do you know what Revelation 12 says about your enemy, the accuser? It says he accuses God's people day and night. Do you know he never sleeps? He's he's ready to go in the courtroom at 2 a.m., he's not tired. And so he's, here's what makes him so crafty and so good. He uses evidence in the courtroom. When he joins you there as your accuser, as the prosecutor, he joins you in the courtroom. And guess what his exhibit A through double Z are against you. When he's pulling up evidence to try to prove something about you and against you, he's using real evidence. He's not making it up. He doesn't have to. And so he's using things against you, things you've done, things you've said, things you fantasize about, things that you've thought, things from your past or things that you've dreamt about doing in the future. And he's going, see who you are? He doesn't have to make anything up. He comes and assails the conscience with real evidence. Because he's not a bad lawyer. He's really freaking good. He knows how to accuse. He knows how to prosecute. He's had thousands of years of practice. And so now I'm supposed to, to my own self, be true, and I'm supposed to, be proud of me, and only I have to be proud of me? Are you kidding me? I'm losing the trial in my mind all the time. I'm supposed to not be so hard on myself, and I'm supposed to declare myself an identity? That's exhausting. It's never enough. I'm not winning in court. I'm being destroyed in court. And so we spend all of this energy, subconsciously even, Working to try to defend ourselves and prove ourselves and justify ourselves, and the damage that gets done internally and externally from having to prove ourselves, from having to self justify, from having to defend and validate myself, it is destroying us because we live in a courtroom on any given break from the day. Sometimes I'm walking into a meeting and I've been in the courtroom on the way to that meeting and they have no idea that's going on and I'm exhausted. I don't even know why I'm exhausted but subconsciously I've been trying to prove and defend myself the whole way over the meeting. Or how about when I'm having a conversation with my wife? Everything from um, where we're going to go to dinner that night on our date to how we should discipline our kids to how she felt like I interacted when I came home that afternoon. Anything. How about in in the crucible of that moment I can feel like Something is at stake, namely my identity. I can feel like something has to be proven to her. She said something. She's thinking something. She accused that. Now I go into lawyer mode, into courtroom mode. She doesn't even know it. But now I'm fighting to prove something, fighting to defend something because something's at stake to me. My identity's on the line by the way that you said that. So now I've got to go into lawyer mode to defend these accusations. And she's not the She doesn't know we're in a courtroom. She can feel it. But I didn't tell her that, oh, hey, let's step in the courtroom real quick because i got some evidence I want to talk about. It's just coming out because I'm so busy in the courtroom trying to prove why she's wrong or prove why I'm right or prove why that was a misunderstanding you didn't really understand my intentions, and so that should make you not hurt anymore. All the things, courtroom, 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 courtroom. And so now in the middle of what should be a conversation between two humans who love each other, we're in a courtroom. Identities have to be kept intact, justifications have to be made, defenses must be proven, evidence is coming out. And so this, this is just one example. Not only is that exhausting for all parties, it's destroying her. Because <laughs> think about it, in that moment, I'm not listening to her, I'm not loving her, I'm loving somebody, but it's not her. I'm not caring for her. I'm not actually engaged in the process of caring for my wife. I'm too busy defending myself, even just internally. Do you see the connection of the the labor of having to prove yourself to others or prove yourself to yourself, and the damage that can do to anybody that tries to get close to you? Do you know that the sin that's destroying you the most right now The thing in your life that is causing the most harm in you and in other people is the area of your life that you keep defending yourself about. The place in your life where you feel like something has to be proven, the interactions in your life where you believe something ultimate is at stake, it's destroying you and those close to you because instead of being free, you're frantic. And instead of being loving, you're anxious. You can't actually be with somebody and love them because you're so not sure how the gavel's going to slam. So there's things to prove, there's things to defend, there's things to justify. And maturing in the mystery, get this, begins looking like stepping out of the courtroom. I'm free from the courtroom because did you hear what the mystery said to me? Did you hear what the love of God has done for me? Do you hear how I now stand before him in the courtroom? I don't have to be in the courtroom. The gavel has already slammed. The verdict is already in. There is nothing at stake here. This courtroom theme is all throughout this passage. Similarly to that verb, or that noun, unaccusable. The verb here that Paul uses twice is also a courtroom-themed um, verb. It says Christ has presented you. That word to present is a judicial term. It it literally means like to bring someone before the court. Like I'm presenting you before the court. And did you hear how Christ has presented you in the courtroom? Holy, blameless, unaccusable. Paul is saying, I know the courtroom of the mind. I know how exhausting and damaging it is. And I'm trying to get you out of the courtroom. Why? Because the mature in Christ changed the world. When there's nothing to prove, you'll be free to love people. When there's nothing to prove, you'll be free to serve people. When there's nothing to prove, you'll be free to change the world. Christian, you are now unable to be accused when you stand before the judge and jury because Jesus has presented you to himself blameless without fault or stain. You do not have to present yourself to anybody Because Jesus has presented you. He pleads your case to the judge with his own merit. Who can bring a charge against Jesus? How many of our wounds do you think, wounds done to us and wounds that we participate in, have come from trying to present ourselves instead of being presented by Jesus? Do you know you are killing the people around you? You're killing yourself because of your refusal to be presented by Jesus. And that's why we care about maturing in the mystery of grace. The aim, the telos, the orientation of Paul is the same as Midtown. We want to present you mature in the one that's presented you. Not mature to him, mature in him. And to present you mature in the presenting that Christ has done, And as we mature in this mystery together, we want to grow up in that, stand on that, be drowned in that, that we might heal this broken world. Let's pray. King Jesus, we are, we're exhausted. Even just this week, Father, I, I subconsciously was aware of how often I'm in the courtroom of my own mind. And so save us. Give us rest, Father, we pray. Free us from having to present ourselves to anybody, ourselves and you included. Because Jesus has presented us. And now his record is ours. Who can bring any charge against us? Give us rest in that as we feast on that this morning and mature us in that reality, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.